Good morning, Bethany. Good morning. We are going to turn to 1 Thessalonians um, chapter 5. We're going to begin at verse 23 uh, through 28. So I'll give you a second to get that up. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. For those of you who don't know, I'm David Buving. I'm the pastor of youth and worship here at Bethany Church. And when Jeff offered for me to preach on the last passage in the book of 1 Thessalonians, I thought that's perfect. I can just like clean up everything he's done so far. <laughs> uh, all joking aside, uh, this has been a, a great study through the book of 1 Thessalonians, and I'm, I'm looking forward to studying these last few verses with you, um, even as it's a pretty short section as you just heard, I think these, these few verses play a significant role in our understanding of how to live out um, what we've studied so far in the last few months. But I wanted to start first with a story. Uh, growing up, my dad always liked to fix his own cars. He did repairs around the house. Uh, generally had a do-it-yourself kind of mentality. I don't think it was primarily that my dad loved working on cars. It was uh, what we could afford. <laughs> and uh, that being said, I have some great memories from helping my dad, you know, change the oil, rotate the tires, you know, normal preventative maintenance to one day sitting in the parking lot of a hotel in Medford changing out the water pump because uh, <laughs> it had gone out on a drive from California up to visit family in Portland. Working with my dad, I learned a lot of these skills and I've been able to use those in my own life. So I work on my own cars, I enjoy taking on projects around the house, um, and as you can probably imagine, some of those projects go well and some of them do not go well. When Caitlin and I first got married, um, we bought a house in a small town in California called Jackson. We started taking on projects all around the house, uh, things like redoing the flooring, repainting, uh, even attempting to kind of move a wall, which was a fun project. But, but from the first day that I saw that house, there was one project that I was both excited about and overwhelmed by. The backyard was relatively small, and we knew we wanted, like, a grassy area. There was no grassy area, uh, but there was a big hill in the side yard. And so I thought, we're going to dig this out, put in a retaining wall, and then have a nice little yard here. So I decided I'd take that task on with a pickaxe and a shovel. And to understand the significance of this, you got to know what it's like to dig in Jackson, California. The dirt is clay mixed with rocks. By the end of the time this was done, we, we even found one rock that we couldn't find the limits of. <laughs> so, one Saturday morning with lots of optimism, uh, I, I set out. 
Soon we would have a beautiful backyard. Got to work, chipping away, taking scoops of dirt, filling up my little black pickup truck, uh, drove it, dumped it at a little lot that our church owned that they said we could dump the dirt at. And I came back and there was no noticeable difference from a day's worth of work. (laughs) And I quickly, quickly became discouraged. Reshaping hillsides is not for the faint of heart. I had a casual conversation with a friend of mine who was a contractor, and he was able to arrange for an excavator to come and dig out the backyard, and in that process, they removed 55 tons of dirt and rock. Uh, Looking back, it makes me laugh at how naive it was that I might dig that out with a pickaxe and a shovel on free Saturdays. As we've walked through the book of 1 Thessalonians, we've seen Paul calling people God's people, to a new, new way of living, working with diligence for the good of others, viewing sex as a gift from God and using it in the context that he has called good, grieving well while hoping for Jesus' second coming, living with other believers in vulnerability and at peace with all people as we live. Paul has called the people of Thessalonica, and and in turn, he's calling us as well to live in a way that just isn't natural for us. And yet, as we read this, many of us approach this with a do-it-yourself kind of mentality. We can look at the list of ways we need to grow as Christians and view it the same way I, I viewed that backyard right in the beginning. If I just work hard enough, I can accomplish this. And so with the best of intentions, we we set our nose to the grindstone and start to work to accomplish our sanctification, our holiness, our growth. But the problem is that this mentality always leads to either pride or burnout, and usually both. First comes pride at what we've accomplished and how fantastic of Christians we are. You know, (laughs) if we're honest, sometimes we're like, "If, if... There was a People magazine for Christians. I should be on the front cover because I'm doing pretty great right now. And then we fail and we crash and burn. And either we lie to everyone because our identity is so tied up in the success that we think we have. Or we spiral out of control, rejecting more and more of what the Bible has said. Pride and burnout. That's the fruit of the do-it-yourself mentality in faith. But neither pride nor burnout are fruit of the Spirit, obviously. So if that's the outcome of our sanctification process, clearly we're approaching it wrong. Paul closes this book, this book that's been full of calls to change with a clear statement of where the source of this sanctification comes from. Hopefully you've got your outlines in front of you. Today we're going to unpack three points from the passage together. And the first one is this. God himself will purify us and prepare us for Christ's return. God himself will purify us and, and prepare us for Christ's return. Let's read those first two verses again together. Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Paul ends here with a prayer to God that God would do the work necessary to bring about the completeness, the wholeness that we so desperately need. 
away from that mentality of do-it-yourself spirituality, Paul is concluding this letter with a clear statement that it's God who does the work in us. And, And I love how he words it. God himself. God hasn't left our growth up to fickle humans, a.k.a. me, or even to other spiritual beings like angels. No, God himself. God, who is the very source of peace, is the one who is shaping us, drawing us deeper into likeness of Jesus. Our sanctification is a unique process in which we partner with the Holy Spirit, not by digging in our heels, but by submitting to his leading and guiding. By allowing God himself to do the work that he desires to see in us. So we have to realize this. God is the one behind any meaningful change in our life. Our natural tendency is to see change in our life as a result of our hard work. And I think that that thought process is even more prevalent uh, in rural America than almost anywhere else. Because so many of you have built your lives from the ground up. You've worked really hard. You've taken every opportunity to give yourself uh, the good life for you and your family. And often with that comes the mentality of, I can do this myself. I always want to be a blessing, never a weight on my community. And that can shape the way that we think about our spirituality as well. And so we read the Bible looking for rules that we can follow so that we can have that good life. Rather than looking to meet God himself and have him make us new. But Paul wants us to understand how reliant on God we are for change. That nothing meaningful changes without God's hand at work. And so you might ask, what is my role then? And I'm so glad you asked because that's what's next in my notes. Uh, Our role is submitting to the leading of the Spirit in our lives and to avoid quenching or silencing the Spirit. That means that as the Spirit prompts us, we're willing to follow his lead even when it makes us uncomfortable. And the reality is this kind of growth will always make us uncomfortable. It might lead us to places or thought processes that we aren't comfortable with. Moralistic, self-reliant growth is often more comfortable because we get to define the terms and we get to celebrate our own successes. But when we submit to the leading of God's Spirit, we no longer get to define the terms. And often the change that happens in us is so outside of our norm that we have no option but to give God the credit for what's happened. In Galatians 5, Paul describes what life in the Spirit looks like as compared to life in the flesh. And he he says this, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. The idea is that we would be looking, watching, to see what the Spirit is doing in our lives, and then we're leaning into that. It's not that we don't have any role to play, it's that we are not the leader, we're not the one who accomplishes the change. 
Jesus isn't your co-pilot. He's your king. And rather than God helping us from a distance, he invites us to walk with him, and he will be our guide. The role we play is that of apprentice and humble follower. The second, se- the second thing this first section shows us is that being made holy is a holistic process. It says, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's certainly been some discussion as to how we're supposed to understand the divide between body, soul, spirit. Paul usually refers to body and soul or body and spirit, but here he says body, soul, and spirit. Usually it seems like uh, when he's talking about this, soul and spirit are kind of used interchangeably. However, here he distinguishes them. And it's led some people to, to say maybe there's three distinct parts to being human. The body is how we interact with the natural world. The soul being the center of our thoughts, will, and emotions. The spirit being how we interact with the spiritual world. Others would say the soul and spirit are, are still interchangeable and, and what Paul is doing here is, is just trying to emphasize how all-encompassing our sanctification truly is. I tend to lean towards that second understanding that that our soul and spirit are not to be understood as separate ideas, but Paul really wants us to grasp just how holistic, how all-encompassing growth in the spirit actually is. Um, That being said, I can can appreciate arguments from from either side. Either Either way, the main point that Paul is making here is this idea of holistic sanctified, that we're we're not merely called to change the way that we think and feel, and we're not merely called to change the way that we act. We're being called to be made holy in our whole self. Paul doesn't want us to be uninformed, but we should have our mind filled and stretched with the beautiful truths of God. And that our emotions would be engaged as we grow in both how we relate to one another and how we relate to God. But also our lives, our actions, our choices should be shaped by God and who he is. And I think we all tend towards one of these extremes or the other. Some of us love to to read, think, and plan, but... Living upon those things that we've learned is maybe a little bit harder. So we fail to look like Jesus even as we grow in knowledge. Others of us love to have our emotions engaged, but we struggle to do the hard work of growing in the truths of who God is. And so we're easily led astray. Still others of us lean towards action. Uh, My brother's favorite phrase while remodeling his house was, Less talking, more doing. Anytime a conversation about how to do something was going on, less talking, more doing. And and maybe you're like that. Maybe you're like, why do we need to figure all this out? Like, can't we just get out there and be the actual hands and feet of Jesus? And, And it's a beautiful thought, but it can result in a weak faith. It's essential that we view ourselves as whole persons as we grow. 
True holiness requires a holistic approach where we submit our body, soul, and spirit to God for his leading. So where is your weakness? Where, what direction do you tend towards? And then what would it look like for you to submit that part of yourself to the spirit? Paul ends these two verses with, with two beautiful reminders. The ultimate goal of our sanctification is our being made holy. Sorry, of our being made holy is that we would be blameless at the coming of Jesus. And secondly, he says that God will be faithful to complete it. Our last subpoint in this section is this God will be faithful to complete his work in you. This is both a warning and an encouragement. The the encouragement is clear. If I'm truly found in Jesus, then I don't have to worry about how I'm going to get myself from the state I'm currently in to the state I need to be in when I stand before Jesus, the judge of all the earth. I can look at the process of growth that I've gone through in my life with its ups and downs and, and use that as an anchor and encouragement to know God is doing something in me and God will Complete what he has started in me. I'm reliant upon him and his goodness. However, there's a warning here as well. If you do not see the work of God in your life, then maybe you're not his. If you can't look at your life and and trace the threads of how God has been shaping you to be more like Jesus, then I encourage you to view this as a warning. Have you actually been united with Christ Jesus in his death and resurrection? Does the Holy Spirit live within you? My goal is is not at all to cause true believers to question their faith. My goal is to issue a warning to those who have lived their life with knowledge of the gospel, but without the transformation of truly being saved. And if this brings up questions in you, Don't just dismiss it, and don't sit in painful silence, wondering. Talk to someone that you trust. Don't let the storylines roll around in your head. Talk to someone you trust, someone you know who will be truthful. Ask them if they've seen the Spirit working in you, and if their answer is yes, then go ahead and be bold and ask them, how specifically? (laughs) One of my uh, favorite things, Anna Burnham, <laughs> sorry, this just popped into my head. Anna Burnham says, uh, it's the, what culture? The Slovene, yeah, Slovene culture, that if you say something uh, nice but generic to somebody, they'll be like, oh, how? Like, oh, hey, it's nice to see you today. You're looking great. Oh, how? <laughs> yeah, anyway, so do that. <laughs> if somebody says they've seen the Spirit working in you and you're struggling, don't just let that in the conversation. You say, how do you see the Spirit working in me? Because I'm struggling right now. My hope is that that will be a wonderful time of encouragement. And if it's not, if the answer is, is no, or if they really struggle to have an answer for you, it's not too late to have the Spirit make you new. Don't, don't let your pride of however long you've been in church stand in the way of you recognizing your desperate need for Jesus. Turn to Jesus, repent, and believe. This idea of reliance upon each other leads perfectly in the second point we're going to talk about today, and that's this. 
We are called to live together in complete unity. Paul makes a few statements here that make that clear. Verses 25 through 27, he says, Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. So let's start with verse 26. Greet each other with a holy kiss. So this is the part of the service that the introverts really hate. Go ahead and turn to your neighbor. Okay, sorry. Just kidding. We will not be practicing the holy kiss here. (laughs) Although, if you're married and you want to, go for it. But uh, anyway, the idea of a holy kiss is is a fascinating idea. And and I think it's something we tend to kind of skim over the surface. I've, I've heard it compared to a handshake, handshake that it's like, it's just a culturally appropriate way to greet someone. But I don't know about you, but I don't buy that. Like, kiss, handshake, uh, does not really connect. A kiss is more intimate. Uh, it, it involves you being, like, in another person's personal space, inside their bubble. And, and to clarify, when I say intimate, I don't mean sexual. I just mean very close, very personal, very vulnerable. So I've experienced the whole, like, kiss on a cheek from a European relative thing. So I'm, like, you know, doing some research. But from the best I can tell, this is not referring to a kiss on the cheeks. This is referring to a kiss on the lips. Uh, So I was reading this week from an author who's done a bit of study on this and how the early church handled it. Um, And and he pulls from Clement of Alexandria here. Uh, He was a church leader in the 2nd century A.D., Um, And he says this, Clement of Alexandria warns that bold salutations are uh, among Christians are like spiders biting the lips. To avoid the poison of licentiousness, Christians must exchange the kiss with a chaste and closed mouth. (laughs) Yeah. So in this warning, he's basically saying Christians should be very careful to be appropriate with their holy kisses. But it's still implying that the kiss is a kiss on the lips. (laughs) So by this point, you might be wondering, David, (laughs) what are you doing? (laughs) You're making me uncomfortable. Uh, I'm (laughs) sure that's true. (laughs) But I actually think this is important. This idea of the holy kiss is an intimate exchange, and it's absolutely more personal than a handshake. It's a sign of close familial love. The same author goes on to say, in late antiquity, kissing frequently implied a familial tie because early Christians often tried to depict their communities as a new kind of family. Ritual kissing may have appeared to be an appropriate tool to reinforce the family structure. So while there's some debate about the meaning, the clearest, most likely answer is just that. The, the, the goal of this idea of the holy kiss was that we would see each other, different as we might be, as family members. I, I think that one of the biggest struggles around unity that we have in the church comes because we tend to act more like a loose association than a family. I'm not uh, suggesting we reintroduce the holy kiss. Uh, I think a hug is probably a more accurate, culturally appropriate 
translation of the holy kiss. That being said, it, it doesn't really matter unless we're actually treating each other like family in other ways. And we love each other as family and care for each other as family. Um, Je- Jeff and I really wrestled with, as Christmas is coming up, once every seven years, Sunday and Christmas collide. What do you do? Uh, every, <laughs> every time you have to ask that question, what, what do we do with that? And one of the main reasons that we decided we're, we're going to still meet on the Sunday that lands on Christmas is because the reality is we're a family. That's how the Bible describes us. This isn't a social club where we just like cancel gatherings that don't fit nicely into our schedule. We're a family. We belong together because we are all children of the King. Beyond that, real unity requires deep relationships. And this is something that that should come in a family, but I think we need to point it out anyways, that true unity requires vulnerability. To live in true unity requires vulnerability. I did something this week that's unthinkable as an introvert. I struck up a conversation with a random stranger. And uh, (laughs) we talked for like 15 solid minutes. And it was a nice conversation through the whole thing. We were peaceful, friendly, maybe even encouraging. But no one would say we experienced like true unity and community because we don't actually know each other. Paul's call to live with real unity in the church is also a call for real vulnerability. That we would be inviting each other deeper into our lives to know each other and to be known. Now, that can be tricky, especially depending on your personality type on a Sunday morning with 150 people standing around and children whirling around you and whatever else might be going on. Maybe for you it's opening up in a growth group or going deeper in a DNA group. Maybe it's through one of the Bible studies that we have. But my question would be, are you experiencing true unity? Which means people like actually know you. Maybe they even disagree with you on things you care about, and yet they still love you. Paul models that humility and vulnerability for us here in this passage by simply asking people to pray for him. Like he's the spiritually elite one, right? He doesn't need prayer But he does. He absolutely does. And this isn't just a token ask. This is something Paul repeatedly asks people that he's pastoring to pray for him. When you look around this room, can you honestly say, I know people and they know me. Like a family member, we love each other. And if not, what do you need to change in order to experience that reality? Secondly, when we talk about unity, we have to realize that the call to unity assumes diversity. Now, I want to be careful here. Diversity comes in many different flavors. I'm not saying that our church needs to look or sound some specific way. But what I'm saying is that we should be a mixed group of people who don't all look and think exactly the same way. And one way our church does this really well that I am thankful for is that we have people here, uh, even this morning, all the way from a couple months old all the way to 99 years old. I love that about our church. 
Paul says in verse 27, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. You don't have to tell people who are getting along to get along. Like when my kids are playing nicely, I don't go into their room and go, make sure you're not fighting with each other. Like you tell that to people who aren't getting along. Paul's statement here saying, under oath, read this to all the brothers, it implies that there's a desire to exclude some people in the body. During the the pandemic, Jeff made a statement that really stuck with me. Uh, He said, church growth through just taking off the masks or or making big statements is the easy route right now, and we're going to take the tough route. Because in the end, if we take the easy route, we end up with a group of people who all think and look exactly the same, and that isn't what the church is supposed to be. Regardless of what your views were on that, we want people with different views together. That's a good thing. And I'm so thankful for his vision and leadership during that time. In Galatians, Paul says, there's there's neither Jew nor Greek Neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For all, sorry, for all are one in Christ Jesus. The idea is that if you are found in Christ, if you are a believer, an apprentice of Jesus, that is your primary identity. And it isn't that your other identities go away, the other things that make up who you are are still important. They just pale in comparison to the significance of who you are in Jesus. We no longer have a good reason to divide over the other things that make up our identity. Instead, we embrace each other in unity through our differences. Real unity requires diversity. You don't have to tell people who think the same way to be kind to each other. So a few questions as you think about that. Do you put up walls between yourself and other kinds of people? When you think about what you want our church to be, are there certain kinds of people you don't want to be in our church? Or are you able to joyfully embrace others, even those who might make you uncomfortable at times? Because of our shared love of Jesus. Do you have the humility to realize that you might not always be right when you disagree with other people? And do you have the grace to model Jesus and accept people where they're at rather than where you think they should be? Paul closes this letter likely in his own handwriting, and says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So, so as we conclude, that's, that's our, our last point is this. All this is only possible by the grace of Jesus. On our own, we don't have the goodness necessary to come near to God. And the reality is our sanctification is not the process through which we make ourselves look beautiful to God. 
the Bible's calls for growth and change in our life are not the path back to God. Growth or sanctification is how God, in his gracious generosity, brings people nearer and nearer to himself, more and more like Jesus. We're reliant upon his grace, upon the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, in order to not only be saved, but to grow in holiness. You've been brought from darkness to life through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And if we fully grasp that idea, we should be both incredibly thankful and incredibly gracious. Our lives should overflow with thanksgiving for the free, free gift of new life that has been given to us. And when we look around at others around us, rather than being judgmental, we should see them as beings that God loves. People who, just like us, are unable to restore their relationship to God on their own. People who desperately need the Spirit of God to transform them into the likeness of Jesus. So let me end with this question. How does your understanding of God's grace towards you shape your life on a daily basis? How does it shape the way that you look at the people around you? And how does it shape the way that you look even at yourself? Let me pray. Father, we praise you for the good news that we, we don't have the impossible task of bringing ourselves back to you. God, you have come through the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. You have given us new life. And through your spirit, you are guiding us and changing us, molding us into the people that you want us to be. God, I pray that you would make us here at Bethany, make us a community of people who look at each other with the love of Jesus, who care for each other, God, I pray that we would have the ability to be vulnerable with each other and to talk about the things that aren't polished and nice, even as each one of us walks with the Spirit, growing in likeness to Jesus. And God, fill us with a hope and a confidence that you're going to finish what you started in us and prepare us for the day when we get to see our Savior face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.